Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lortel. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. I am so excited for this afternoon's podcast and conversation with two of my favorite people in our industry. But first, I'd like to introduce my co-host, my one of my closest friends in the whole world. Uh, we've been through the mill together, and I'm so happy she's here with me right next to me as my co-host. Let's welcome today Joy D. Michelle Moore. Joy, welcome. Thank you, Eric. I'm so happy to be here with you. How excited are you to welcome these two? Oh, my goodness. This is such a thrill. It's such a thrill. It's um. I feel like I, it's Christmas and I just opened a wonderful package. <laughs> I know. And how incredible the project that we're working on to welcome these two here to be able to talk to them about, about it all. Yes, yes. Okay. So without further ado, let me welcome our two very special guests today. These two incredible artists, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. Welcome, you guys. Thank you for being here at Live at the Lortel. Hi, it's, thanks so much for having it, us. It's an honor. The The first play that I did in New York City was at the Lucille Lortel Theater, so it feels like coming home again. Uh, well, I wish we could, you know, we did. We used to do them live at the theater where we'd be able to sit on stage and, and have a conversation and, you know, be welcome, you know, the audiences would come in and watch. I mean, I, I miss being in an actual theater. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, being artists like yourselves and doing so much work in the theater, what, what that transition is like. You want to talk a little bit about from, we can go right into the line from here. So you want to talk about what that transition has been like? Yeah, absolutely. So in March, in early March, our play Coal Country opened at the public theater. I mean, Coal Country is part of the story of the line in a certain way, right? So that that was a documentary play that we wrote based on interviews we did with surviving family members of coal miners who were killed in the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster in West Virginia in 2010. And it was a commission for the public. It was a play with music by Steve Earle. So we had been working, I mean, I think we had done that we had gone down to do the interviews like four years prior. We had been working on it for a really long time. Um, usually our documentary theater process takes an extended period of time. We workshop raw transcripts with actors repeatedly, and particularly because this had music, there was a whole other layer. And, you know, the 26 performances or so had happened. Audiences were getting the play and people from West Virginia were coming and, and the reviews were some of the best I've ever gotten. Um, it definitely was. I mean, I think it's okay to say it is my favorite thing that we have ever made. Like it was so, Steve Earle recorded an album called Ghosts of West Virginia that is the songs from the play. And um, right. Eric, I came in the other day and Eric was playing it and I just burst into tears, like mm -hmm. hearing the music, right? So we were in the middle of this, like just really extraordinary artistic experience with that play. The cast was perfect, just amazing. Families who were related to the miners came to see it and knew that we'd honored their men. And it was very cathartic experience for them. If there'd only been one performance of the play, that would that have been would have the been one enough. that we wanted to do. But, you know, and there were plans to take it down to West Virginia. I mean, there was a whole sort there's a lot we were, of momentum. We were in 
emotion with it. And which hopefully we really, really hope very strongly that when theaters can open again, that the play will be able to reopen. The set is just sitting there. Right. Because oh, wow. everything shut down so suddenly. So we went from that in one day to, you know, obviously we're not the only theater artist that happened to, right? That was a collective experience for anybody who had anything open at the time. And it was really shocking and crazy and upsetting. And I didn't get out of bed for a couple of weeks. I mean, it was rough. But you were immediately, sorry to interrupt. I know the news came and then everything just shut down. And then we all went to hiding. We all went into confinement, right? We live in Brooklyn and we live near an ambulance dispatch center. And the sirens in March, they just wouldn't stop. Yeah. We started talking about doing something about COVID. In those first few weeks, we couldn't even figure out. I mean, every everyone in the theater was so confused. But there Nobody were so many sirens, on. like I kept getting triggered every time the sirens would go past because I knew kind of what it meant. Right. And like there was one every five minutes. It was difficult emotionally to, and to live here. Absolutely. We were like in the middle of it, just trying to figure out sort of what to do. And I was talking to the public every day because, you know, we still thought, I think people thought maybe we might reopen in a month. Come back, right. right. Who knew, right. Good. Somewhere in there, towards the end of March, the 24-hour plays contacted us because they were doing their viral monologues and they said, do you want to do something? And we said, well, yeah, can we do it documentary style? And this was like late March. And so, and they said, yes. And so I did some outreach because we knew we wanted to talk to a New York City nurse. This was like, we did that interview when like, you know, there was no PPE. It was like really at the very beginning of the peak when things were very, very chaotic. And it was an incredibly emotional interview with, with as Eric was saying, like the sirens outside the house and everything, right? And as I had been doing the outreach, trying to find that person, we've had found some other people too, right? And so we were on the phone with the public and we said, look, this is a crazy idea. We don't know what you're doing right now, but like, would you be interested in doing some kind of rapid response documentary thing online about what's happening right now? And they said, well, we're still figuring out what we're going to do, so we don't know. But they called us back three weeks later, and they were like, let's do this. Let's go. Let's get it up by July. So we just jumped right in. And unfortunately, we have a foot in the theater and film worlds. So we directed our first feature a couple of years ago. Um, both of us have acted on stage and screen. I've done a lot of television, and I'm on a show right now. We knew that we wanted actors who had feet in both worlds as well when we started workshopping it. But we reached out to hundreds of people, but we ended up interviewing almost 20 people. Yeah, something like that. I mean, we started doing the interviews in mid-May. We were done. I think we did 10 days straight of interviews. And our interviews are usually like around three hours, sometimes a little longer. So we were doing like three or four interviews a day, which was super intense. Three usually. We were finished. We took a couple days off in there to breathe and we were finished in 10 days and we had like the whole administrative staff at the public. It was amazing. It was this great collective effort to try to get something up that fast. They were transcribing while we were interviewing, like all of the stages of development were sort of happening simultaneously we were we'd, we'd finish interviews i'd go to a transcript that just came through the transom i mean it was the uh, sheer collective effort that went into creating the line was a beautiful thing it was a beautiful to be working but it, it was a beautiful thing to behold it was beautiful seeing all of our ensemble and our tech people and our stage manager and our production people and everybody like working as a unit to make something that mattered you guys were all doing it from home. 
you would get the information and send it electronically to whomever. And then how did you guys figure out? Because I did watch it. It was fantastic. How did you guys figure out? Because it was one of the first ones that was a theater piece that people were doing online. So how did you guys figure out how we're going to like make it a single screen and a double screen? And like, how did you... The first thing that we realized was that in a way it's kind of our most intimate piece because we were asking the audience to be in the seat of the interviewer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was very intimate, you know, and so, you know, we knew that it would be direct to camera address from the actors, but the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, yes, we, the whole thing was constructed from quarantines, right? So we were interviewing people on Zoom. Right. And then we would send the un- recording them on a voice memo and we would send the voice memo to the team of transcribers and that went into a Google Drive. And then, you know, we printed the transcripts and started working with them like on our living room floor, like we usually would in a rehearsal room. Right. We did do one workshop to help sort of narrow things down where we had a group of actors come in before we were cast, right? So they're there in the special thanks because they did us a real solid by allowing us to hear some of the words. You know, we were meeting with Oscar and with our amazing dramaturg, Jesse, like every couple of days, like we were casting as we were writing the script. And then we had a whole rehearsal process over Zoom. We had cast in London, in LA and in New York. Yeah, a lot of people don't know it was recorded live. Yeah, it, and, it, and the oh. performance was live, too. So we had this, I have to shout him out every time, Ido Levron, our technology guy, technical director, but he was doing computer stuff. He had like a command center in the Newman at the public, and he figured out how to, I don't, he was working with Zoom somehow so that he had every actor's Zoom feed into a separate computer. And then he basically was doing like live television editing. And we decided together in, you know, in the tech, right? Like how we wanted, he showed us various looks for how the screens could look and where we wanted the cuts to happen. And he was making those cuts live in performance. It was pretty extraordinary. Like it definitely was like a great, I mean, we didn't know how to do any of that when we started doing it. We just figured it out, which was an awesome thing as, you know, as a theater artist who's been working for a while, it's nice to get back in that feeling of like, oh, I'm doing a brand new thing that I've totally never done this before. Yeah, Right. We're all kind of navigating our way yeah. through this techno. And I, I know for myself, I'm not very, well, you saw before with my mic, I'm not very tech savvy. So it, it's a whole new world for artists to to find our way through this technical and, and rehearse and perform. You know what I'm, I'm very fascinated about are you find such incredible people to interview and to document their stories. And where's your wealth of, well, Eric, you laugh, but I'm fascinated by where you find this wealth of people to interview. I do laugh because like, I had a teacher in college named Victoria Santa Cruz when I was at Carnegie Mellon, and she was very frustrated with me as a student. She taught a class called Rhythm, which was a lot of clapping and stomping games and call and response stuff. And I just, you know, even though I played guitar and stuff, I just couldn't do it. (laughs) And really what she was teaching me was that I didn't know how to listen. Thing that I read today, take the cotton out of the ears and put it in your mouth. When you open up and listen to somebody, I think everybody's incredible. You know, like, it just depends on what you're listening to. You know, I, I, everybody's got an incredible story, you know, like, I love the stranger on a train syndrome where somebody, you know, 
talks to somebody else and maybe reveals something about themselves that they never would to their spouse or their best friend. You know, it's always an interesting, you know, and I think after having done this for a while, you know, Jess and I know how to talk to people. I think it helps that we're married and we disagree with each other sometimes and argue during the interview and no, no, I don't want to talk about that. I want to do this, you know, um, you know, I, I, I guess we're somewhat relatable, but yeah, what do you, humanizing, right. I mean, I think, you know, look, we, Definitely, when we're embarking on the journey of making a documentary play, we have subject matter that does self-select for people who have lived through extraordinary things on some level. But then we really just go out and try to find whoever wants to talk to us. Our baseline, once we know sort of what pool of people we're drawing from, whether that's death row exonerees or civilians that lived through the war in Iraq or, you know, is the first thing we're looking for is enthusiastic consent. We're looking for the people who want to tell their stories actively, right? So that's one way, you know, what we do is quite journalistic in a lot of ways. We don't chase stories like an investigative journalist would, right? Mm -hmm. We want the people for whom telling their story is going to be, feel good to them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, it's too hard. It's like, why ask somebody to relive? It doesn't feel ethical to ask them to relive something like that if they don't want to, right? So then we just get who we get. And we always interview more people than the number of stories that will be in the play ultimately, right? But nonetheless, everybody who we talk to is extraordinary. And I think the lesson that I have learned over and over, I don't want to speak for you, but I think it's true for both of us probably, for 20 years is that, you know, human beings are incredible, right? Yeah. Like if you shut up and listen and actually create the space for somebody to really tell their story, like every one of us is carrying extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, most of the people we talk to for the line, like you walk by them on the street, you wouldn't know. They're extraordinary heroes, like just incredible complicated people who are showing up and doing life and death level work every single day. And you wouldn't know unless you ask. Let me ask you this. I spoke to uh, another documentary artist who's been quite successful at it. And I was asking her, how do you legally get around being able to tell somebody's story and through their words? And you're putting it together. And she was sharing with me that she interviews so many people that she just pieces together pieces of different stories. So it's not one person's story in each piece. It is a story that she's made out of all of these collective words. Mm-hmm. And do you guys do the same thing? Or do you just really extract what that person said? And if you do extract what they said, do you do some sort of agreement with them? Or how does that work? What we do is more journalistic than that. We are not fictionalizing anything. The people had pretend names in the line because we were protecting their anonymity, but we don't composite characters. We don't put things from different people's interviews together. The people we interviewed for Aftermath, like some of them were under death threats from militias in Iraq. So that was our play that we did with Iraqi refugees. So we changed their names and right. identifying details and stuff like that. It's important. Right. Like if there was like a specific village, I think, yeah. that we changed the name of. So if we have to, to protect somebody. But other than that, right, like we don't. Because I think we believe, 
a big part of the impact of our work has to do with people knowing that this is actually what happened to this person and that this is a real person who really lived this, right? And so there's a trust that we build with the audience where they have to know that. So we like to say like, you know, 97% of the words in our plays come directly from the interviews. There's instances where like somebody will tell half a joke or something and we'll finish it, right? That is that kind of thing. Or they'll tell a joke sort of here. Right. And then they'll finish it over here. We're like, "Ah, got it. Yeah. And so yeah, we get releases at the beginning of the process. And that's part of that enthusiastic consent thing, right? It's like, we're asking people, do you want to do this? And Mm. so, you know, if there's any hesitation about signing that or agreeing to it, then that's a signal that maybe they don't want to tell their story, really. With most of our work, too, we try to have some fundraising aspect with it. Uh, With Exonerated, we were able to raise money directly for exonerees. With Aftermath, we raised money for refugee organizations. And then with this, we wanted to help uh, healthcare workers in our city specifically and their work. So we raised money for two um, organizations dedicated to um, keeping New York City healthy. Which is amazing. I want to take it back a little bit. And I, I definitely, there's so much to talk about, but I want to see where the seed was planted. And I mean, I know the story, but I'd love for you to tell how the exonerated was born for our listeners. The, Eric's rolling his eyes a little bit no, as if, you know, no, 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 <laughs> not rolling the eyes, but I know it's a story that's been told and told, but for our listeners and for storytellers, I, I think it is so important. Sorry, he was not rolling his eyes, but it, it is a moment of, we have to tell this story again, but I think it's so important for artists out there to hear and how the two of you met. And I love how the story, how exonerated was born. Sure. Oh, we love to. I love. Start? No, I love telling the story. You you start. Okay. It's. I mean, li- literally, it's <laughs> kind of the story of like us meeting each other and falling. Right. In love. That's why. Right. That's. Back. I love it. Yeah. Eric, you start. I want to hear because okay, you're start. you're smiling so, ear to so, ear, and I, I love it. Doing a play at the Lucille Lortel Theater. It was in my fact. You know, I'd had a couple of theater companies, and I was already an equity member. But but it was my New York premiere as an actor on the stage, and I was doing it with Manhattan Theater Club. It was an Arthur Copet play. I was fine in it, um, but we had an audience one <laughs> afternoon. I won't swear on your show, but there was an old couple who made a comment. Uh, you can the- swear. One uh, or, uh, once or twice is okay. This word. I'll, oh, okay. Oh. I'll leave it. Be. Okay, never mind. They used the C word multiple times with each other because I said the word. The wife said, what did he say? And very loudly, he repeated the word. <laughs> And this whole conversation went back and forth and the audience was in stitches. And I was just like, this is a disaster. I need a drink. So I was doing theater. So I was poor. So I went to my friend's bar and um, I walked in and Jessica was sitting with my friend. They were on a date. So and yes, he crashed our day. Scandal. It was yeah. a birthday. Yeah. It was like casual. It's okay. Yeah. But yeah, he, I had just moved to New York to go to acting school. I had just graduated college and just moved to the city. And, you know, I was on a date with this cute guy who was cool and smart. And then another cute guy who was cool and smart came and sat down with us and fine. It was casual. And we started talking and apparently I got up to go to the bathroom and apparently Kelly leaned over to Eric and told him to step off. Yeah. And was like, there's yeah. a whole vibe <laughs> between you guys. Like, I need you to. So, because when I back, like Eric very quickly got up and was like, I have to go. That's the part that made me roll my eyes because it's like, okay. Okay. I'm just good now. Okay, good. I love it. And I can't believe you listened to that direction. You left. Before he left. No, 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 no. Before, I left. Before he left. Before I left. He gave me his phone number right in front of Kelly. Oh. To get yes. 
to get free tickets to his play, right? So he, because he had been telling me about Y2K and Arthur Copit and Lucille Lortel and all of that, right? So I love that there's like Lucille Lortel product placement in our store. Yes, keep but, saying it, please. Right, so, so he gave me his phone number. I went out with Kelly a couple more times. He's great. We're still friends. He DJed our wedding. Yeah. Like, yeah. but it fizzled. And I called Eric and he had given away all of his comps. But he didn't tell me that, and he bought me a ticket and left it at I the box office. I think I actually office. may have borrowed money to buy the ticket Aww. because I was pretty oh, so sweet. sweet. And I came to the play, and we went out afterwards. And so then, fast forward, we had a great first date. Eric invited Arthur Copet on our first date, which was wonderful because he's the best talker. And his wife, um, Leslie. And his wife, yeah. Leslie. So, And then we started dating, and we had been dating for about a month. And I brought Eric to a conference on the death penalty at Columbia University. And he likes to say that it was early enough in our relationship when he would still say yes to anything I asked him I to do. I would have said yes to knee surgery. <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And so he said yes, and he came with me. And it was very, it was very like, it was, it was your standard activist situation. There right. were a lot of different tables with pamphlets and we talked to a lot of people and it was very interesting. But then we showed up in this conference room with all these people who think the same way that we do who are left wing and in their processes. And it was a preaching to the choir type situation where we, we heard an interview with an inmate who was one of the death row 10. He was on death row for a crime that he hadn't committed. The confession had been tortured out of him by a police commander in Chicago. The commander was later found to have actually done this. And but these guys were but, still sitting But these there guys were still sitting there in prison and it was very moving. And I looked around and realized- well, Wait, wait, you just skipped a step. What, so we heard, a le- we heard a lecture on the cases and learned all of this information, but then they had set up a phone call from one of the guys in prison and yeah. they hooked the phone up to a speaker so that he was talking to us in the room. And everybody was and crying. By the end of that, everyone in the room was in tears and it was totally different than like this sort of information download that we had gotten for the previous hour. It was this really moving experience. But then, yeah, Eric looked around and he was kind of like, you said we can swear, right? He was like, this is bullshit. Like we're at a death penalty conference. We're not the people that need to be having this. And you know, one of, one of my formative plays, speaking of documentary theater people was Emily Mann's uh, execution of justice about the trial and, and murder of Harvey Milk, you know, and it, it really mm-hmm. yeah. had a big effect on me. Eric Bogosian's work had a big effect on me. Jessica was a, I was like, a huge Anna DeVere Smith fangirl. Like she, and, and beyond a fangirl, yeah. like really actually when I was in college, like, she was the only person who existed who I was like, oh, I can maybe do what Something I want to like do in the world because she exists. So we immediately, I drew a picture of, of at that point, a light bulb over a stage with like eight chairs. And that ended up becoming the set for Exonerated. We, we got the idea, writing notes back and forth to each other in the classroom about how do you get around this problem of preaching to the choir and how could we bring this emotional experience that we had had to people who might not agree with us politically. And yeah, we got the idea. And then we went home and we did like a couple months of research. And then we just did it. We had the support of Alan Bushman at the Culture Project from very early on. We brought him the idea and this was it would have been in like May of 2000. And he was like, you can have my theater for free for three nights this fall if you have something up for readings in time for the election. Here's a thousand dollars. Go. Wow. But beyond that, we just did it seat of our pants neither of us figured it out i'd written a couple of really bad plays that'll never see the light of day until i'm until after i'm dead i had Um, poetry yeah there's some poetry in our house and i mean like but but neither it's good (laughs) 
I won't quote the line that no, I quote don't. all the time. Please don't. <laughs> I'll, I'll your ass. Okay, cool. <laughs> then the play ended up running for two years, almost two years off Broadway, and all these people came to do it. And like Susan Sarandon did the movie along with Delroy Lindo. And I counted one time like 30 some Oscars and a bunch more Emmys walked through the door to be a part of that play. Bob Balaban brilliantly structured it in such a way that we could have guest actors rotate in. Yeah. So we had a core cast, one of whom we saw at the beginning of this interview in the voiceover studio, Bruce Cronenberg, was in our core cast. We had, right, like four actors that didn't rotate and then a couple of the other roles did. And that was able to, you know, keep it running for a really long time. And But it, it really, I mean, I do think, you know, you were talking about young theater artists before, like I was just out of college in acting school when we started working on the play. Eric was a young actor who had been in New York working for nine or 10 years, but, I, you but know, had my never career, written anything. But my career had, had really flatlined. I was doing- You were doing of, okay. You were working was, on TV. I was and, doing TV movies, but like- But you weren't was, writing plays. I wasn't- And we didn't know how to do that. I wasn't fulfilling my purpose. I knew that I couldn't just be an actor. I mean, my favorite part of being a Carnegie Mellon was always devising scenarios and- and then playing them out. As the storyteller now who wears multiple hats, I just need to know what hat I'm wearing so I stay in my lane. That was a problem for a while, but- Oh, that's interesting. You talk about that a little bit. I think that's really fascinating. And I think, Joy and I would love to hear that. There are so many hats to wear as a writer, actor, producer. I mean, with all of these hats, and I think Joy and I, Joy can definitely talk about this more than me because she got a million hats. And I, I think that- you have to decide, <laughs> right, where and which one you're putting on at the time. Well, I mean, the hard part for me is I'm, I'm such an enthusiast. I get so enthusiastic about work and about other people's work. The hard part for me was when I would join as an actor with somebody else's work and I could see solutions. Rather than holding my, holding my peace and keeping them to myself, I would sometimes offer up a solution. And sometimes they were accepted and sometimes people were like, stay out of my creative process. And it took a few times of somebody doing the stay out of my creative process thing for me to get it. I mean, it also helped that I was doing Al-Anon meetings and stuff like that. <laughs> Once I figured out how to respect other artists' process, it was part of the learning to listen more thing, right? I got to say, especially for young people who are like coming out of a weird situation now and they're coming out of school and everything's online and it's all TikTok and YouTube and me, me, me. I have to say the experience of working on something that was about somebody else and the privilege that that was and what I learned from other people's stories, it was the listening that led to success and artistic fulfillment and all of that other stuff. The sort of idea that I should be famous or whatever, like really left me at that point, you know, that I should be more appreciated. No, really what I should be is I should be of service, mm -hmm. um, you know, and like, so when I'm acting, I'm on a show called For Life on ABC right now. But when I'm acting, I really am there to be of service to the writer. And when I'm writing, I'm there to be of service to the performers and to the director and also and to, the, the, and to the, and the people with stories and yeah. also to the public. You know, what I'm putting out there is for them, ultimately. And it's great to be of service. I mean, I think, you know, when we did The Exonerated, we both wound up sitting in on it. Eric filled in for Richard Dreyfuss yeah, <laughs> once, yeah. um, and I, I was not up, as good. by the time it, it had like lived out its life in New York and was like going all over the world, it, there was a production of, it went to the Dublin Theater Festival and I was like, I want to go to Ireland. So I played the wives in Dublin. So we both like, you know, jumped in a little bit, but people would ask us like, are you going to be in it? Like, did you write roles for yourself? And first of all, because it's documentary theater, like you have to sort of set that aside, like, because it's about the real people and you can't try to create like I couldn't try to pick 
a story based on who I could play, right? But secondly, I think, you know, we really knew at the time trying to wear both of those hats at once is advanced, right? Yeah, we didn't do that until Jessica directed it me was in, much later. in the Lester Bangs play, right. How to Be a Rock Critic. One of us was able to wear that hat and it almost broke us. No, no, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I was operated, I started directing our plays. And so, and that transition is a little easier, like transitioning from writer hat to director hat. It's like, it's different, but it's closer. But with Rock Critic, it was really interesting because we wrote it together. For a long time when we were workshopping it, we would cast another actor in the role. So this Eric a, could the, be the writer. This is our play. This is if, if we have three tragedies and a comedy for the Dionysian Festival that we're going to throw someday. Um, this is our this is our work. this is our comedy. Oh, that's yeah, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, but but it was, you know, it's about, <laughs> the, it's about the rock critic Lester Banks, who is one of, yeah. one of the 20th century's most influential writers for a lot of people. I mean, for a lot of people who don't write about rock and roll at all, he was an influence an influence. So it's not a strict documentary play, but it's adapted from his entire because he died in 1982, but it's adapted from his entire body of work. So right. we use documentary theater technique to create it. And so, yeah, we would cast another actor in all of the workshops so that Eric and I could be co-writers, but then it got close enough to being done. It was like, okay, it's time to step in. And that was an interesting transition. Yeah, I bet. He would hit a moment in rehearsal and he'd be like, I think we need to change this line. And I'd be like, no, I think you need to play it differently. Right. And like, so that was like, okay, you know, we, but, it's not working. We right. A wonderful groove with it. But it and was, two it was patients, a and two patient stage managers who both will still work with us. Yes. So <laughs> wonderful stage managers. Yeah. And a brilliant dramaturg. At the same time, sometimes it's helpful. Like I was talking to one of the writers on For Life and I had an idea for a, a thing and they used it and it was it's super it's exciting to be able to like properly drop in on somebody and say hey you know I have some received wisdom here if this helps at all you can you can but now you know like who to who to pitch but now I but I, now I know the proper time to do right. that and when and all that other stuff it just took a while to figure that out you know you mentioned a second ago about finding your purpose can you both talk about what that process was like for you to make a decision that this is what feels like I'm on track to living my purpose as opposed to being an artist who's living in that space of pick me, pick me, pick me. What was that journey like for you? It was ego shedding, you know, I mean, like 9-11 happened in the middle of Exonerated right. too, which I'm public about it now, but I have some profound PTSD, mostly from my 9-11 experience. It's been quite the struggle to get through it talking to people who have PTSD from other experiences, I think the pick me, pick me thing stopped when I realized that my story wasn't the most important story in the world. You know, that there are experiences that are completely alien to me. And the only reason they are is because I'm not listening. For me, it was in a process of really shedding myself of my ego and not being in this for myself. Jessica taught me mostly about that. I also doubled down on Buddhism when I was in the middle of that. So that helped too. There were a series of events about shedding ego and shedding the idea that it's about me. And it's really hard in this world where everything is about branding and stuff like that. Like we don't have a brand because we planned it out. You know, we just, that's, that's kind of the prism through which people view us and whether that's accurate or not is entirely not up to us. You know, how people perceive me is not my concern anymore, you know, because my work's not about me. 
it was an incredible gift to, as a very, like I, I, we started working on Exonerated, like I said, when I had just first come to New York, right? So I was still in school. She was still at Bill Asper. And yeah. yeah, I was studying with Bill. And so to have that experience where it was like that play, it felt very much like it wanted to exist in the world. It was larger than us. It picked us up by the scruff of the neck and used us for five years in order to make itself manifest I, in the world. I hear musicians say sometimes when they're playing with their band or whatever, especially people who are collaborative in their, their musicianship, that the song just appeared. Like it was there already and we just pulled it out of the air. And, and you know, it takes a lot of technique to be able to do that. You got to really double down on your technique and, and read good people and show up and like have good influences and be around people who are also engaged in positive influences and stuff like that. But sometimes after a lot of work, you know, you're able to pick something out of the air and sometimes it rings true. Yeah. And I think, you know, I entered into the process of making the exonerated. I, I was a theater person. I knew I wanted to go into the arts. I knew I wanted to come and be an actor. And I knew that was the world I was supposed to be in. But I also, I mean, I brought him to a death penalty conference of like a month into dating. Like I've also always been extremely <laughs> political and like, and really was raised to know that I needed to try to make the world a better place and a more just place. Like there was a big part of me as a young person that was like, I, this art thing is like self-indulgent and I should be off like doing relief work or like, or community organizing or right. Cause I could be doing that stuff. Like there's a part of me that could have gone down that road, but I knew like my heart was like, this is the thing you're supposed to do. Go to New York, go to school. Like your life is waiting for you there or somehow. But I had this big question of like, is it possible for art to actually make a difference in the world or am I just being self-indulgent and like making excuses because I want to go be an actor, right? And the exonerated gave us a very clear answer to that question. When Governor George Ryan of Illinois was considering whether to commute the sentences of everyone on Illinois' death row before he left office, they requested that the play be brought and performed for him. And it was performed for him as part of his decision-making process. And he did commute those sentences and has said that the play was a factor in his decision. So that's over 150 lives that like, and it's very concrete, right? So since seeing There were that, a lot of other people that talked of to Of course, yes, yes, yes. We don't take credit we for it. We were just it, part just of the conversation. Part of that conversation. You, you, you still part, you, and, it, it's still a, a component in it. Yeah. And that, I think, seeing that was like when I understood my purpose was like, okay, what just happened? How did that happen? How were the circumstances able to be created where a story could actually affect the real world and create real change? And basically, I was like, I'm going to just dedicate the rest of my life to figuring out how we did that and how that happened and how to replicate it. And now I, I also I teach story structure, not only to other artists, but to advocacy organizations and nonprofits. I teach story for social change because it is actually possible to change people with stories. Yeah. I want to remind our audience to please put your question up or you can ask it live. Jessica and Eric, you, you talk about, and I hear this a lot with the artists, about the simple phrase of just showing up. Just show up is 95% of it. Want to talk about that a little bit when it comes to art? 
Sure. Well, I mean, you see, I have a lot of guitars back here and, and I, I love them and I've played them since I was 20. And the um, I've had periods, fallow periods where I don't play much guitar. And then I have these really rich periods where I, where I play a lot of guitar. I found that the joy that comes from playing guitar comes from like hanging out with other musicians. I, I'll tell you, sitting and practicing scales <laughs> that my guitar teacher has assigned to me, it's putting my butt in the chair and like doing the grind of that. There's not a lot of joy in that all the time. There's not a lot of inspiration all the time, but you know, the act of showing up every day and hitting the same scales and doing the same chords over and over again, you know, you got to show up for yourself in those moments. You got to show up so that when glorious accidents do happen, you're ready to grab them. The same thing now with I'll memorize my lines on the day type actor on set and maybe this is just because I'm old now and the brain doesn't work quite the way it used to, but, <laughs> but, but I memorize my lines now two weeks in advance. So I'm completely free when I show up on set to make any adjustment that the other actor or director or, or, or camera person needs me to make. It doesn't decrease my spontaneity. It actually prepares me for more. So that's the kind of showing up that I'm talking about as a performer, as a writer, sitting down and writing whatever it's going to be for two hours a day, being in a generative mode. That's very important for my process too. So I don't like the word inspiration and I don't like the word talent. I have a problem with both concepts because I think both That's concepts. That's a good thing. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> get in the way of people making their work. Right. And he's so funny. I know. Right? Um, and, but I think talent, you know, we think of like, they're both sort of ways in which we like romanticize art making, right? To think that like, you have to be inspired in order to make something good. No, you don't. You have to show up no matter how you feel every day and put your butt in the chair and practice. My grandfather. And sometimes you're going to feel inspired and you're going to get, and sometimes you're going to sit down and not feel inspired at all. And two hours in, you're going to click into a flow state. And sometimes I told that Jerry Garcia yeah. story this morning to somebody else, like sometimes you're going to feel like shit the whole time you're working. And then you're going to look at it two days later and be like, Oh, that's good. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, sort of talent is the same thing. It's like nobody sits down to do their work and just like is good. Like that's not how it works. Like it's a craft that we practice and like, we make good work like, by practicing. Like farming or being a mechanic, a car is not going to fix itself just because you're talented. Right. <laughs> you know, of course. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, singers and actors, I mean, we don't, they don't just open their mouths and, you know, a beautiful sound can come out, but it's like a muscle. You have to... You have to work at it. You have to stretch it. You have to do all the things to do to to make the art. Joy, I, I know you have a question from the audience, so please go ahead. Yeah. What topics do you hope to tackle in your upcoming shows? Mm. Um, we have a secret show. Yes, we do have a secret show, Ooh. which we can't talk about. <laughs> How secret um, is secret? Okay. It's super secret. It's a, yeah, it's a documentary show based probably on a single interview. That's all we, That's can, all we say can say about that yeah. right now. You said based okay. on a single? Based on a single interview. Yes. Oh, a I, single interview. Yes. Okay. A one a one-person documentary show. I will tell you that technically I'm thinking of this now as a piece of theater with three cameras on the actor. So yeah, like, it's probably for online. Because because it's a single camera, you know, a single frame can't hold focus for as long as multiple. So I want to try to capture the performance from different angles, but a single performance 
So that's one technical thing that we're working but on. But they want to know about the subject and we can't talk about the subject. So we have more Lester Bangs work that we're doing. We do. We're making a Lester Bang adaptation of our play, a film adaptation about the Lester play. We're working on a few different television projects with various executive producers right now, all three of which are actually are historical, which is interesting. One set 100 years ago, one set about 50 years ago, and one set about 40 years ago. Right. But they're all sort of historical in ways that have really direct resonances with contemporary politics. I love that. Okay, I'm going to ask a question that could be slightly inappropriate. So brace yourself. Great. Okay. And it's based on what you just said. I love period pieces. I love them. However, when you watch period pieces, you normally don't see Black people. Or if you do see them, they are in some sort of subservient role, which we all know in history, that is not the case all the time. So in the period pieces that you're working on, do you have black people doing something other than being oppressed? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, oh, yes. Good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the three is like, it is the professional world. But the other two, absolutely. Like, I mean, I wish I could talk more we publicly about like them, but we, we can't. But, but like we have, yes, we have black leads. And actually one, the one that we're furthest along on, if we do sell the show and it gets made, our entire writer's room will be black writers and Italian writers aside from us. Yeah. Like we and our showrunner will be the only white people because that's enough. And there are white people in the story also. Mm-hmm. Right. But then, but other than that, yeah. The- uh, you know, doing exonerated was my great grandfather was a judge and my grandfather was a highway patrolman. And I lived in Minnesota, which at the time, and I guess in a lot of ways, rural Minnesota is pretty white. That was my, my civil rights education. Because I'd been taught that things were a particular way. Exonerated was. Yeah, exonerated was. I learned about civil rights from Delbert Tibbs, who spent two years on death row and knows more about civil rights, you know, in a second that I'll know in a lifetime. Um, He knows about the actual physical toll that not having them took on him. And he's who taught me. Front loading, not front loading, but making sure to honor stories of centering and centering stories on people. People of color is incredibly important to us. And I, I, when we were talking to nurses and stuff in the community and stuff like that, that was important for our play as well. Yeah, for the line that was really, really crucial. Um, Yeah, Lorraine Toussaint was wonderful. To be, oh my god, yeah, oh my god, I still always amazing. The fact that I got to direct her, another teacher of mine. I would just, I like really, we would have one-on-one rehearsals, and I would just watch what she was doing and be like. She's extraordinary. What do you say? Oh my God. <laughs> um, but but we really wanted to make a play that looked like New York, right? And like that was really, really important. And you know, obviously it's very this is all complicated territory. We're white playwrights, right? Like we shouldn't be Black playwrights should be writing fictional plays that are centering Black characters, right? Like the, But because we work in documentary, it's not our story, right? Right, And it's not somebody that we've made up. It's like we are vehicles that are creating like a craft vehicle, right? Like we're creating the story structure, but we're honoring the people and it's it belongs to them. The best thing that we can do when we're making documentary theater is to get out of the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, I love Does that, that answer your question, Joy? 
Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, it feels like from what I'm getting from you guys, it's not like royal pals, but what I'm getting from you in this moment is that, and, and particularly you saying that you really learn to listen, that when you take these stories that are not your stories, you, they still can be told in different kinds of ways. But you guys have been very mindful to cast people in those parts that are in touch with the truth of what it is. And you being good listeners, you guys work in concert with each other to make sure that you're able to put out an accurate story as opposed to a colored story that tells a skewed view of what that is. And it looks like that's something that you guys have been committed to. And I just want to commend you for that because I think that that's what the issue is that I can't speak for all people of color. Like I speak for all of us, but uh, (laughs) I think that that's what a lot of people take issue with is that, a lot of times people aren't willing to listen when they're telling the story, even if you are the writer or you are the director, if that person is going, ah, this doesn't resonate, this doesn't feel honest, this doesn't feel true, but they're going, but that's how it is in my head. I think that's where the conflict comes. And the fact that you guys put so much emphasis on listening just changes the game. So thank you. Connor, I, I have another. To lead us as well. I mean, like we really do. Like you know, it happened during Coal Country. There's one African American character in Coal Country, and we were there was a monologue that needed to be moved because he was talking last, and he really needed to talk first. And Ezra, who was playing the character, pointed out to me that that was an issue. That was a problem. And immediately, we were playing with different order right. of like a series of monologues. And he was like, there's one black guy in this play. He can't talk last. And we, we were, were like, like oh, oh, so you're you know, right. That's when, you not just, going there. That's, that's when you just like accept that other people are your teachers and you, you're going to fuck up and you need to, to just listen. That's all. Yeah. Like you said, you get out of your way. Get out of the way. I have a couple more questions from our audience. I, I want to get to a few. How do you typically find the actors for your projects? Um, I mean, you know, at this we have point, a cadre of people yeah, now. Like I mean, we have, you know, we have the great privilege of working with extraordinary casting directors, right? And Jordan and Kate at the public are, I mean, just so dreamy and have doesn't get better than that, right? That know almost everybody in New York, and you know, so we have. I mean, I really do want to give a big shout out to casting directors because they are often overlooked, and they are artists. They are great, great artists. And when I'm directing, I like they are one of my most important collaborators. But yes, like Eric said, too, we have a little we just accumulate people, right? Like we know when we work with somebody and we recognize like, oh, you're we see it the same way. Great. Like and we just kind of keep we try to keep those people close. So we're, you know, often like when we're imagining the TV projects that we're working on now, like we're thinking, we were just talking yesterday about like, oh, we should cast this actor as if this gets made, we should cast this actor as this role. Like we're already thinking about our artistic community all the time whenever we make something. Okay. I got one more for you. Have you ever had an experience in an interview that surprised the hell out of you? (laughs) <laughs> so many yeah Darby well Darby or did you have another one well Darby goes no I, I, because <laughs> that goes to the same stuff that I was talking about uh-huh. with Delbert and it's just repeating okay. it's, I think the one interview that surprised me was when we were 
interviewing a guy from the exonerated named Kerry Max Cook. I kind of lean on my naivete a little bit when I come into these interviews. Like I don't want to know too much about a story. So I don't direct the interview. I want them to direct me. It's a little bit like some, you were talking earlier, Joy, about letting your kids have a say and, you know, that self-directing in a way. And I think stories are much more satisfying for people when it's self-directed, when they're under their own steam rather than you leading them. So I didn't know a lot about Kerry's case when we met him, but, you know, about two hours into the interview, he started openly talking about sexual assault that he experienced in prison, multiple sexual assaults. It wasn't done in sort of a way to shock me or anything like that. He was just very matter of fact about it and open about it. And that openness about something that really is still not talked about was really surprising to me. I was speechless I think, you know, like I said before, I'm a bit of a talker and I'm, I need to learn still more to, to listen better. But I think I was speechless for close to 90 minutes. And that's probably the first time in my life that that had ever happened before. I mean, I think, you know, every interview we do is full of surprises because people are incredible. Right. And I think I am continually astounded, even though, you know, we have a way of doing things and we, you know, we have ways that we interview people and every time at the depth and the amount of vulnerability that people open up with. I mean, and again, we're looking for the people who want to tell their stories, but the fact that they are willing to go there with a couple of strangers that they've met three hours before and like the amount of trust that people put in us is continually surprising to me and just re-ups my incredible sense of responsibility to do right by their stories always. Mm -hmm. The show um, For Life that you're on, Eric, um, it's in alignment with the kind of work that you guys do. So was it, are you a part of the creative team on this as well? You know, it's so strange. I, again, the universe looks out for you. You know, I'm on a show that has an incredible cast and is a, I I really believe is on, on television anyway, the center of the Black Lives Matter conversation right now um, in terms of fictional in television. Terms of network TV. In terms of network television. I wake up every day impressed and surprised by the people that I am allowed to work with. George Tillman, who directed The Hate You Give, is one of the best directors I've ever worked with in my life. And he and the showrunner decided to grace me with the part. It's one of those shows that's so in line with my values that I never want it to end because I'm tearing up now because it feels like family. I feel like I've been welcomed into a very beautiful church. And the thing to do there is to be in communion with one another. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just to say for any listeners that don't no, it's the, the, the show for life is a, based on a real, a true story. Um, a guy named Isaac Wright, who's extraordinary, who was wrongly convicted and received a life sentence for drug trafficking and became an attorney in prison and got himself out and is now a lawyer on the outside. So it is about wrongful conviction. And it is, it is wild. Like, I mean, I, you know, coached him on his audition. He just went in and auditioned for it and just happened to be, but I mean, to wind up the, on that show. I think the wow. weird for everybody on the show is I'm so the opposite of the character that I Yeah, play. he plays the character. It's kind of an unforgiving prosecutor. Guy. Yeah. Like, wait, but, but exonerated, but, but then as a, joke, yeah. as a joke, the set designer like snuck our book about making exonerated on the set. <laughs> So it's like uh, behind somebody's head. 
Yeah, you are. It shows how good you are because you are awful on it. I mean, <laughs> you, make, you really make my skin crawl. You know, we, we have to wrap up, unfortunately. But I, I wanted to say, you know, Joy is spearheading a project that we are working on from our, our couple of our graduating classes at Mason Gross. And we just want to let you know, um, you know, your, your structure, your template to what you guys have planted this seed and, and put out is really the base for a lot of what we're working on. And um, I just want to say thank you for, as one artist to others, and um, to say th- thank you for this template and for mm-hmm. helping us move along in this process. And Joy, you want, you want to say uh, like about a minute or a minute and yeah, a half about I it? Just, I just want to say the cool thing, just so you know, like what you're putting out into the world and what it's doing. Um, The cool thing is that we got together. I I brought people together for this group that I call Heal and Create because so much is going on in the world right now. And us as artists are feeling a certain kind of way. And I went out to protest with my daughter one day for an artist protest. And she was doing photography and I'm there and I'm thinking, this just doesn't feel like this is really what my calling is. And I went home and I really thought about it. And I was like, I'm an artist. That's my calling. I don't have to be out in the street to be an activist. I can use my art to be an activist. And so I then reached out to other people that I've gone to school with who I know whose heart is in that same space as well. So we got together and we started talking and we did some things that would help us as individuals just kind of be able to manage what's happening, what's right now to heal first before starting to create. And then once we did that and we started talking about things, the one common thing that put us all on the same page was what about like the exonerated? The way Jessica and Eric put that together, like what if we look at that? Because we were all going from ideas and ideas and ideas and ideas. And once that came into the conversation, everybody was like, ah, I get it. And it really gave us a format and a structure for us to speak the same language. It's kind of like when you are a Meisner person and or you've been working with Bill and you go, you know, but what are you working with? Or, you know, what's your point of view or what's your, ad- or whatever. What are you, and you doing? Go, oh, what are you, you doing? The same language I speak, you know? So you guys really gave us a language to work with. There are a couple of people in the group that I think had worked with you guys before. Trish McCall. Do you know who she is? Yeah. 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 Trish and Chantel Kaysen. Oh, amazing. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then Ken Weiner, I think, had Ken taken um, a class with you. Ken Weiler had taken a class um, with you as well. Yeah. So it really. And April Thompson, who was yeah, in. April Thompson. April, who was in Exonerated, yeah. Yeah. So for us, it was like this magic moment of we have a language and we can all speak it. So thank you for doing the work that you do consistently and it actually becoming a genre. It actually becoming something that people can look at and say, this is a format we can use. So thank you. Yeah, we're all really great. It's such an honor to be here. And like being that even being said to me at all is just, is just, mm-hmm. I'm just, I can live off that for the next like three months of my life. Like, I, okay. I, I was, we need I was, everything we can live no, off listen, of for dude, the next three I, months. Guys, I, I, totally almost, agree. I almost called it off today. I was uh-huh. like having a bad day until I talked to you guys. So thank you. Uh, Eric, when you speak the way your wife looks at you and Jessica, when you speak the way your husband looks at you, 
it is it is truly beautiful. It's breathtaking. I, I wanted to take a picture of it, but <laughs> with so much pride and and joy when the when each of you talk the way you turn and look at each other, it's beautiful. So I want to say thank you again, Joy. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, I adore you too. I, I feel like we've known each other forever now. So I. I'm so grateful for this hour and to oh. be able to talk to incredible artists. Yeah. Joy, send your picture and resume over that way, please. <laughs> All right, thank you. And that's our show. Next week on Monday, January 11th, we will release our interview with the creators of the visual album Capsule, Whitney White and Peter Mark Kendall. Capsule is having its world premiere at the public theaters under the radar festival. Performances began Wednesday, January 6th. On Monday, January 11th at 7 p.m., Joy and I will be interviewing the legendary Anna DeVere Smith. If you would like to watch that interview live, join us on our website, liveatthelordtell.com. We will discuss her deep commitment to social justice, arts education, and her fostering cross-disciplinary exchanges. And of course, we will also discuss her groundbreaking plays and performances. That interview will be released on our podcast on Friday, January 15th. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.